Welcome to the Creative Pen Podcast. I'm Joanna Penn, thriller author and creative entrepreneur, bringing you interviews, inspiration and information on writing, publishing options and marketing ideas for your book. You can find the episode show notes, your free author blueprint and lots more information at thecreativepen.com and that's pen with a double N. And here's the show. Hello creatives, I'm Joanna Penn and this is episode number 446 of the podcast and it's Friday 23rd of August 2019 and I am back in Bath in my audio booth after my trip to Orlando for podcast movement. So today is an exciting episode as I'm talking to Mike Shatskin about navigating changes in the publishing industry. And we talk about Barnes & Noble being bought by a hedge fund company, what that might mean. We talk about Amazon publishing, we talk about um, his book and some of the things that puzzle me about the publishing business. And we'll be talking about that as well as potentially audio first content and much more. So that's on the way. Mike has over 50 years experience in publishing. He's very well respected in the industry and I've been reading his blog since I started out so thrilled to have him on the show today. In futurist news this week. So I have talked several times now about GPT-2, which is the terribly named (laughs) AI natural language text generator uh, released by OpenAI earlier this year, but on a massively reduced scale because it was noted it was too dangerous to release in full because of how it could be used to generate fake news. And I tried out that first version and it was really interesting, but they have just released a new version, a larger model, which means it has been trained with more data, which means it generates better text. And they're releasing it in increments because they, uh, and they've written a lot on the OpenAI site about the ethics of these different models and what things might mean. But uh, they're saying that if this version is not used in a malicious way or in a bad way, then they might release another model uh, to come. So this is very interesting. You can go and the next web reports on this and uh, they move on their opinion. The first opinion on the first um, release a few months ago was this is not very impressive, but they've changed their tune. So on, I've linked it in the show notes as ever, but certainly it's worth trying for yourself. You can go to talktotransformer.com and uh, just enter in a couple of sentences from one of your books or whatever you want to enter and see what it says. Now, it's worth clicking generate a couple of times to see the different variations, but it's certainly not nonsense anymore. So um, if you doubt that AI can create natural language, Uh, go check that out. Also in Futurist News, the BBC reports, and this is interesting to me because, of course, I follow Futurist blogs like The Next Web and Digital Trends and all of that, uh, Singularity Hub and, and stuff. But when The BBC, which is, let's face it, a mainstream news media uh, that is very serious journalism, uh, reports on things, things are moving away from the edges, more into mainstream reporting. And they report that the Chinese search engine Soju or Sogu is creating AI lookalikes to read popular novels in the author's voice, which is fascinating. And of course, I've talked about DeepZen.io, which is working on human level AI text to speech, and also Liabird.ai. And uh, even Microsoft has released some new, more human like voices um, for 
one of their things. Uh, and uh, also noted that Soju launched two AI newsreaders last year used by the Chinhua News Agency. So this is really moving. And again, if you doubt these things are coming to fruition, check out these companies that I'm talking about. Listen to the voices and uh, see what you think. In my personal update, well, I am um, now happily recovered from podcast movement and I'm going to do a whole show on that. So expect an in-betweeny-sode in the next few days. And I'll only be sharing things that are useful for authors. So I've got like 10 A4 pages of notes for myself, but I understand most of you are not at doing this as I do it. Um, many, Most of you don't have a podcast. However, I think the episode I've designed for you uh, to come is more useful for authors in general. And there are very big changes, things like Google indexing podcasts, and I go into all of that. So even if you don't have a podcast yourself, and very likely you won't have, including pitching podcasts for interviews is going to become a much bigger part of book marketing. I've noticed it already with the people who are starting to pitch me. I'm getting pitches every day from traditional publishers wanting their authors on the show. Um, and of course, I, I'm i only doing this. And in fact, I'll, I'll go into this in the podcast movement episode, but I don't take paid interviews on the podcast and I don't take paid blog posts. And this is really important. And the whole business model around podcasting is changing. And with Google indexing audio, this is it's going to make podcasting the new blogging and being a guest on a podcast is like the new guest blogging. So this is very interesting stuff. Uh, I obviously also talk about going to conferences as an introvert and stuff like that. So that's coming up. Uh, if you want some insights from another perspective, check out episode seven of the Big Gay Author podcast, which is again, um, Jeff and Will have the Big Gay Fiction podcast and now they have a new podcast aimed more at authors. Uh, and I did the interview with Jeff uh, in the lobby of the hotel in Orlando. So my thoughts are more immediate. You get some real atmosphere. Uh, so go check that out. Um, thank, and thanks to the guys uh, for sharing tacos with me <laughs> while we were there. Uh, I've been selected as a finalist in two categories of the 2019 Digital Book World Awards for Publishing Commentator of the Year and Best Use of Podcasting in Publishing, which is exciting. And last year, I won Publishing Commentator of the Year. So you never know for this year. Um, very uh, thanks to Digital Book World. And I'm, I'm really pleased. They have a very voice first focus this year. I really can't deal with another conference. It's like everything comes in at the same time, but that might be something I go to next year. And then in useful stuff, uh, there's a great interview with indie superstar Hugh Howie on the Knowledge Project podcast. Now, um, if you've only joined the indie movement in the last couple of years, you might not know Hugh Howie, but he self-published in the early years um, of indie and hit it very big with Wool, which he published as a novella and then um, continued filling in the story. It got um, a film deal. It got all kinds of exciting things. And this, this is a 
a wide ranging interview, but in the last sort of 30 minutes, he talks about writing and publishing and fascinating discussion on publishing contract terms that are unusual. For example, he does keep his ebook rights, so he's still an indie for ebooks, and he has term limited his print rights in English, which <laughs> is just amazing. You really have to be in a good position to be able to do this type of thing now. Um, uh, and also he talks about um, making sure to not sign away all rights to one publisher, but to sell them, license them separately because you get better deals. He's actually going to get some of his print rights back to wool in the next year or so, which is really interesting because, of course, it's still selling really well. I saw it, I see it regularly in bookshops here in the UK. Uh, I saw it when I was in Orlando. It was in uh, Barnes & Noble I went to. Um, And of course, Hugh is still sailing around the world. He left uh, a couple of years ago now, I think. And uh, but he's still writing, and it was really good to hear his voice and his opinions. He's definitely um, one of the superstars in the niche. Right. So thanks for all your emails and tweets this week. Obviously, because I've uh, was away, there were loads. Um, just a few. T.L. Dyer says, got a list as long as my arm to get through today, but dropping everything to listen to this uh, interview on the introverts, uh, the creative introvert. So that's very cool. Um, thanks to Jonathan Byron for sending pictures of a graveyard. Uh, I always love to see those. And also thanks to Barry Pierman, who found my successful author mindset audiobook in the Auckland Library in New Zealand. And remember, um, you can ask to it, for digital catalogues in libraries, it's much cheaper for librarians to get indie books uh, like ours. So you can always ask. A comment um, from Patricia McLean, uh, who said um, she's talking about the changes in publishing. And in 2007 at NINC, Chris Anderson, then editor of Wired, now running TED Talks, spoke, stood in front of a room full of solely traditionally published authors and said, publishing as you know it is dead. Um, Opened our minds to the future. And uh, Patricia said, it feels to my spidey senses like this is another of those turning points. And I'm grateful you're sharing an interesting outlook. So yes, I mean, 2007, when uh, Chris was talking about that kind of thing, he... um, talked about the long tail back in 2007 and we are living in the long tail absolutely now so um yeah I definitely also feel my spidey senses say we're in a time of change too and just a couple of things uh other things, Pilar Orti says, wonderful down-to-earth conversation on transitioning from corporate to entrepreneur. The inner journey is the toughest aspect of running a business and the thing that will change you um, based on the interview with Blair Palmer. Fant- oh, and one more, Sarah says, um, I normally listen to your podcast at the gym, but today I'm listening to your backlist while building cabinets for our clients. And she sent a picture of a cabinet she's building. Brilliant. Right. So today's show is sponsored by findawayvoices.com and they can give you access to the world's largest network of audiobook sellers and everything you need to create professional audiobooks. Now, of course, I've been talking and the in-between is so coming up. Audio is just exploding and it's only just started. Again, I was amazed to find that everyone thinks it really is just beginning, whereas I've been doing it for 10 years, but it's just beginning. (laughs) 
So I love Findaway because their goal is to help you take back your freedom with audiobook sales. While some services, no names, uh, don't allow you to set your pricing, Findaway Voices does allow you to set your pricing and you can set it for the retail side and for library borrows too. And as I just mentioned, you can get in library catalogues through Findaway with audio. So readers or listeners can listen for free and you still get paid, which is is fantastic. And of course, if you're exclusive with the other service, you can't be in libraries. You are exclusive within uh, the ecosystem that is exclusive. So um, I love Findaway Voices. I'm using them for my audiobooks. You can reach a global audience through retailers like Audible and Apple Books. So you can still be in some of you know those other places, but also retailers like Storytel, which is expanding into all the territories not dominated by Audible, and also Google Play audiobooks, which may become more important with Google um, voice indexing. I really think there could be some uh, synergies there, as well as Kobo Audio. You can also sell direct through Authors Direct, which is just brilliant. Plus, Findaway have started to work with BookBub on their Chirp audiobook promotion site. Yes, the BookBub for audiobooks is finally here, and it's by BookBub, <laughs> and it's called Chirp. Now, that's only in its early days. It's only in the US right now. But if you are in an exclusive setup, you can't use it because you can't set your price and you can only use uh, audiobook discounting if you can change your price. So if you'd like to try Findaway Voices, they can help you find a narrator and produce it. Or if you narrate yourself, you can load your finished files. They also have just announced Voices Share, where the author pays half the normal cost of an audiobook in exchange for sharing 20% of the royalties with the narrator. So if you want to get into audiobooks, now is a great time. You are not too late. It is only just the beginning. And now with Voices Share, you have a more affordable way to do it. So take back your audiobook freedom and publish your audiobooks everywhere with findawayvoices.com. So this type of corporate sponsorship pays for the hosting, transcription and editing. But my time in creating the show is sponsored by my patrons. And thanks to everyone supporting the show on Patreon. It really does mean so much to me that you find the show useful after all these years and want me to continue doing it. So thanks to new patrons, Steamy E. Reads. Lisa C, Max Chamberlain and Renee Starling and also thanks to those who made a direct PayPal donation to support the show and uh, also those who didn't want their name mentioned. Um, So I really appreciate your support Uh, and of course you can support the show with just a couple of dollars even uh, just a couple of dollars a month and less than a coffee a month and you'll get the extra monthly Q&A audio, including the backlist. So you get at least 30 more episodes of audio, um, lots of teaching around uh, writing, publishing, book marketing, and also making a living with your writing. So if you enjoy this, you may enjoy the extra audio. Uh, You can become a Patreon supporter at patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash the creative pen. And yes, you can say Patreon or Patreon. I know I've uh, influenced a few of you that way. Right, let's get into the interview with Mike. 
Mike Shatskin is the founder and CEO of the Ideological Company, an author, professional speaker, and thought leader about digital change in the book publishing industry. His most recent book is The Book Business, What Everyone Needs to Know. Welcome to the show, Mike. Very glad to be here. Thank you, Joanna. Oh, thank you so much for coming on. And I was just saying to you beforehand, but for all the listeners, I've been a fan of your blog for must be 10 years and have always considered you one of the most knowledgeable people in the industry. So I'm so grateful you've come on the show today. I'm glad to be here. Thank you very much. (laughs) So you have been in the industry for nearly 50 years. So what are some of the most significant changes that were unexpected or unforeseen? Well, you know, uh, what's unexpected and unforeseen sort of depends on the person. But I I would say that the two things that have caught me most by surprise are the persistence of print and the pricing pressure on publishers that comes from self-publishers. So when I when I first I first started reading electronic books in 1999 on a Palm Pilot. And I became immediately persuaded that this is the better way. You always have your book or books with you. Um, the the short line length of a of a on a small screen is actually very enabling for reading quickly and efficiently. Um, and since that time, I've read everything on a small screen that I can. There was a period there for years that there were a lot of books that weren't made ebookable. Um, up until Kindle was invented, but be, so I read print books sometimes because I had to. But but mostly I read them because I liked I liked I liked reading on on the screen. And it was a surprise to me that when people were presented with this opportunity, that many people really just preferred the print book. Didn't matter that it weighed something. Didn't matter that you had to turn the pages, um, etc. All of that. Um, no, no matter whatever the reasons, people really preferred it, which meant that print survived in, in much more robustly than I would have expected um, around the turn of the century. And the other thing, of course, which was really just not thinking it through, was that um, it always was it was always obvious that as the audience grew, that um, we could directly access what it wanted online and didn't need retail. But that would enable self-publishing to actually be commercially viable. What I didn't really think through was the fact that through a combination of Amazon pressure and enlightened self-interest, that self-publishers would put their books out for 99 cents and $1.99 and $2.99. And and, And a commercial publisher with a normal cost structure simply can't play at that level in any sustained way. So this is something which over time, uh, obviously most self-published books are not commercial and not of interest to most people. Maybe, I don't know whether it's one in 10, one in 50, one in a hundred that is, but over the years we have crowd curated a very large number of self-published books so that someone entering the marketplace today can find thousands of books that have been read by many thousands of people that are cheap and respectable and not put out by a regular commercial publisher. So that has changed a lot of things in the industry and has forced publishers to really uh, abandon almost certain areas like genre genre fiction. So uh, those are the two things which I think were the most um, 
most surprising to me. Mm. And I've I've always, you know, as I said, I've been reading your blog and I've appreciated your perspective on self-publishing, um, which I've done since the beginning of my uh, writing career 10 years ago because I'm a businesswoman. And you mentioned uh, self-interest there. And, you know, when an author can get 35 to 70 percent, even when they're pricing lower, they're still getting more than an author yes. might get from a traditional publisher. So, And I'm really glad you recognise that. But I did want to follow up. I mean, you talk about the persistence of print against ebooks. And yet what we're actually seeing right now in some markets is audio first. So we're seeing Storytel, for example, um, growing markets as well as obviously um, Audible, but growing markets. So the ebook sales are not there, but the audiobook sales are, you know, growing as well. So, and which is kind of surprising, I think. And I've seen my own behavior change to an audio first uh, listening um, preference, especially with nonfiction, which traditionally I would buy in print. So what do you think about audio? Do you, do you see this uh, changing? Well, no, you're absolutely right about audio. And it's not hard to understand why, right? Because what it, audio, tra- audio travels digitally just as well as, as uh, words on a flat screen do. And now that we're almost all carrying devices that can support audio, um, it, it, it's, it's a simple, it's an easy choice. I mean, it really, it's up to the consumer what they would prefer. Um, it has, it has been an observation of mine that I'm not sure I've made in writing anywhere that almost everything that is available as words on a flat screen should, or flat surface should also be available as audio. And just about everything that's audio should also be available as a transcription. And I think we're moving to a world where the, where that's increasingly going to be the case. Um, and, and in fact, I've found myself using audio. I'm, I'm starting to listen to blog, blog, uh, I'm sorry, podcasts, which I didn't. I certainly went for the very highly produced version of the Mueller report, mm. which turned it into, you know, with, with actors reading it and really sort of trying to turn it into a radio show. And it's a much, much better presentation than trying to read something that, that, that that's, that's that dry. So yes, I think you're, I think you're absolutely right. I think that, um, audio, th- there will be a lot of audio first. Um, and, but I, I think the important thing in the digital age is that you, it shouldn't be a short from the producer's point of view, both formats listenable and readable should almost always be made available for just about everything. And I think increasingly that will be the case. Yeah, I totally agree. And I mean, all my books now I do in uh, ebook, audiobook, paperback, hardback, large print as well. Like large print, I've discovered is is a is a market that is underserved. So it is, you know, having things available. And we're going to come back to print on demand. But let's um, staying with yeah. print. Um, as we uh, talk today, just yesterday, um, the deal with Elliott Management and Barnes and Noble went through. Um, so I wondered what your thoughts are about what could happen with Barnes and Noble because this is very important for the publishing industry in the US as well as the UK. And it, um, Elliott Management also owns Waterstones, yes. for those who don't know. And they are, a hedge, yep. they are a hedge fund, which to me goes, they want a return. So, and this is entirely our opinion, um, but any thoughts on what's going to happen? Well, I think, I think Barnes, and, uh, Barnes Noble, very, very much like Waterstones, is really not configured for the, for the future. Um, the very large store with a very big selection was mooted by Amazon. 
And it's taken a lot, even it's 25 years later, but even now, um, I, I believe that they, that they are, um, past their sell-by date. Um, and so then the question becomes if all your leases are large, uh, large areas, large, uh, uh, retail establishments and, and, and it doesn't make sense to fill them with 125,000 titles, what else are you going to fill them with? And then that means you're not just in the book business anymore. You're in some other businesses as well. And all retail is challenged. And I, I mean, I, I suspect it's the same in Britain, but every, every place in America, what you see is empty retail establishments that were, that were full five years ago, 10 years ago, or 20 years ago. Um, so, and that's really just down to people are finding it easier and easier to just do their shopping online. And the, uh, and the and the things you don't buy online are the things that you really need to feel, see, or touch, or you also are the things you need to have right this minute. You can't wait for tomorrow or the next day. And books do not fall into that category at all. So I think we're nowhere near the end of share transferring from physical retail of books from physical retail to online, I don't think that that, that chan- transition is done yet. I think that stores are still going to be losing share for quite some time. So I guess I'm as curious as anybody else as to whether Barnes & Noble can figure something out that will save them. Um, I'm, not, I'm not exactly sure what the differences are between the U.S. and U.K. and why Waterstones is ma- – I, I went into a Waterstones in London – about three weeks ago or a month ago, I did notice that, for example, there's almost no um, craft books in the store anymore because if you want to knit or sew, you learn how to do it from YouTube. You don't learn how to do it from a book. Um, and so that, that that's one of the things that I noticed was different. Obviously, a lot of face outs, um, ver- you know, not that old feeling of, of lots of so many books on the shelves that you have to spine some of them. Um, but apparently it's working for them, which I think is great. But I would expect that in both Waterstones and Barnes & Noble, that it's going to be very, very hard to have any top-line growth or to avoid any top-line shrinkage. So um, I, think it's, I think it's a very tough row to hoe. I think it was impossible for Barnes & Noble with their mentality of of superstores, which is sort of what made them into a massive chain. It was very, very hard for them um, to adjust to a completely different world. Um, and the other thing about, about retail stores is that the, the, the speed with which books become popular and then drop out is the change in, in public attention has gotten faster and faster because of digital change. And that makes it very hard on a physical location um, when something becomes hot and it's going to be hot for three weeks um, to get books in and on the shelves and and available to the public. And then uh, and then, you know, send them back a month later. It's just very inefficient. And so I think that I just think that the physical store is um, is a 20th century item. And I think it's going to be increasingly difficult no matter how smart Mr. Daunt is and no matter how hard uh, Elliott management is willing to work at saving BNN.
Yeah. It, and it's so interesting hearing you talk about this. I mean, this, I feel like we think the same about a lot of things, even though our backgrounds are so different. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it's interesting because when um, James Daunt uh, took over Waterstones, one thing he did do was return a whole load of stock yep. um, to publishers, which yep. could, could essentially mean a lot of returns back to US publishers in the next month or so. But also he did a deal with Kobo um, sending Yes. Ebook, ebook readers to Kobo. He did uh, briefly do have Amazon and Kindle in the store, very quickly removed that and then moved everything to Kobo. And in the bookseller, they quote him as saying, Barnes & Noble will now benefit from the support of an owner committed to physical bookselling. So do you think they're going to get rid of Nook and uh, give it to Kobo for ex- or sell it, obviously, to Kobo? Yeah, I think that's the most sensible move. And I think that's something that a lot of people expect. Um, Nook looked great for a while because um, in the early days of eBooks, the Amazon sold Kindles to all the people who were Amazon customers. And there were still a lot of people at the, in 2007, 8, 9 who were Barnes & Noble customers and not Amazon customers. And then there were also people that really wanted to see an eBook reader before they committed to one. And that was perfect for Barnes & Noble and Nook. And and it got them into the game very very quickly, but they they their their market or their audience is pretty static, and all the people in their audience have been exposed to it now, so they don't have that. There's no more surge left, and in operating a proper ebook company requires attention and investment. And Nook didn't want to make it anymore, and Barnes and Noble doesn't want to make it anymore, and partnering with Kobo just makes all the sense in the world. So, um, yeah, I would expect that to happen. And um, so I, I, I think that the, it, it, it's hard It's hard for me to see why Barnes & Noble would want to uh, uh, continue to invest in a business that won't be a growth business for them, even though I think neither will print. But, um, but that's what they're committed to, and that's what they want to make happen. What I would wonder is about print. I, I thought Amazon had the formula, right, which is to do these little Amazon stores where you have 4,000 titles or 5,000 titles and you just drop them into the middle of someplace else. And I, I suggested a long time ago that Barnes & Noble ought to go to book departments and other people's stores rather than feeling that they have to own the retail. And I still think that that's true, um, but I think it's going to be – but I I think the real question for Barnes & Noble will be – does Amazon ever commit itself to opening thousands of little bookstores? Because if they do, that's going to be it for Barnes & Noble. But if they don't, then Barnes & Noble has the opportunity to use their buying expertise and um, connections to all the publishers to create more smaller spaces on some sort of different business model. And that's the one path that seems to me to make sense. Um, it's nothing that they would ever have considered under the Riggio management, and it's not really what Waterstones has done. So I don't know whether that's something to expect, but that's what I would, if I were trying to, if I were going for a Hail Mary pass, that would be it. 
<laughs> well, the other interesting thing, because of course I've been through in the UK um, the buyout by um, on of Waterstones by Elliot. What they did very quickly is they introduced a new um, loyalty card and a very active email list, which I had never seen before as good as this from anywhere else in terms of book selling. And they sell, they do lots of competitions, lots of giveaways, lots of clicking nice pictures of things. So it may be a data play at some point and maybe they might sell to Amazon, for example. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I'm not, I can't see Amazon wanting to own Barnes and Noble's real estate. So um, there would have to be some very, very powerful tools to compensate them for how they don't want that. Um, what, you remind me that I didn't talk about the returns and the point that you made earlier, which is a very good one. But before Amazon, well, not before Amazon, but before, well, depending on how you date it. The superstore model that opened in the 1980s of 100,000, 125,000 titles was always a returns trap because only nowhere near 100,000 titles sell at any rate for any period of time. So there were really, if you had 100,000 titles in the store, 60,000 of them were meant to bring people in. They weren't really meant to sell because there aren't 100,000 titles that sell at a rate that makes sense at retail. So what would happen is every few years, Borders and Barnes and Noble would clean out their inventory of all the books that weren't selling and the publishers would get a wave of returns. And that was something that was, you know, sort of part of the landscape, but it was spread sort of over time. They didn't empty the whole chain at once and both chains didn't empty at the same time. So it was, it smoothed out. But you're, I think you're quite right. I think that the publishers could be getting massive returns from BNN over the course of the next year. I won't, it won't all happen in a month because th there's, there's labor involved in pulling and sending back all those returns and there's refixturing of the stores and there's restocking. And, you know, it, it, you can't just flush out 600 stores and change them over at one time. So it will in its way be somewhat gradual, but I think you're absolutely right that it's bound to happen and it, and there's bound to be many, many titles in many, many BNNs that have not sold a, sold a copy for a year or two or four. And uh, the new management is going to be kind of relentless and ruthless about getting rid of those. Mm. So I, yeah, so I wanted to come to Amazon Publishing because you had a post on your blog about this. So Amazon uh, si recently signed Dean Kunst and you commented um, that this might herald profound change in the industry. And at the same time, the Association of American Publishers have filed uh, with the FTC about anti-competitive practices. And I've heard some um, sort of senators in America say, if you own the store, you can't play in the store, which kind of implies they want to separate the retail from the platform. So what, what do you think is going to happen with Amazon in you know, as regards to publishing? Well, I, in my mind, I'm not a lawyer, but in my mind, the most obvious uh, cure for Amazon uh, domination of the book business is to prohibit them from publishing. Um, because in fact, they are they are developing data and understanding from everybody else's publishing, which they then use to compete with it. And that's very, very dicey from my point of view. It's certainly certainly not fair. Whether it's legal or not is not is above my pay grade. Um, so I think that the notion that if you own a dominant retailer like Amazon that is 
half the sales for many people or more and 70 or 80 percent of the sales for some people that they can't be competing with the publishers. It's just not a fair fight. So I think that that there should be some hope that the um, that the a government would step in in that case. And that would it would certainly help publishers a lot if Amazon was prohibited from publishing. But they are not currently prohibited from publishing. And what what has happened is that in the eight years or so since they hired Larry Kirschbaum and had this vision of going out and signing all the books, their market share has gone from maybe 20% to 50%. And when it was 20% and the other 80%, the stores didn't want to have anything to do with a book that was published by Amazon, an author that wanted not just money, but an audience wouldn't publish with them. But now it's half it's half the market. And really, if you think in terms of it's half the sales of most books, but it's far more than half the book readers have bought a book from Amazon and can buy a book from Amazon. So if you're Dean Koontz, you're not really putting your uh, audience to such a great inconvenience if the only way they can get your book is Amazon. Um, that said, is, is the boycott by the Barnes and Nobles and independent booksellers of the world going to extend to an author of the stature and commercial potential of a guy like Dean Koontz? Or are people going to swallow their, their objections and stock those books even though they come from Amazon? Well, either way, I think Amazon has got a path now to sign up a lot more authors. And that seems to be what they want to do. And, you know, if they are thinking the way you and I are thinking about the fact that maybe publishing will be prohibited, that, that says move fast, right? Mm. Um, before that happens, move. So I think that it's certainly possible that where I expected them to move quickly to open a lot of little stores and they didn't, they might move quickly to try signing up a lot more authors. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I mean, they are, I mean, in the audio space, coming back to that, they're so aggressive in signing up authors and snapping up audio rights, because I think what's happened with a lot of authors who, you know, maybe their contracts are a little bit older, where the publisher did not uh, get the audio rights. There's a lot of audio rights for play right now. Yes. And yes. a lot of this is about IP, isn't it? At the end of the day, it's all about IP. Yes. No, you're absolutely right, and you're absolutely you're absolutely right about the audio, and you're absolutely right about the fact that people had 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 they just left that right because because before the current model had, had changed things before everybody had uh, devices that could manage audio and uh, ebooks, and they all had them all the time because every phone can um, that it was not it was not as automatic. I mean, you needed you needed the right equipment you needed to sort of orient yourself to do audio. Now you don't, everybody's got the capability. So uh, it's changed everything. And I, and I, I, I think you're quite right that those audio rights, which have left, been left lying around are of great value now. Mm, definitely. So I want to come to your book, which is called The Book Business, What Everyone Needs to Know. And I, I tell you, I found this absolutely fascinating because I've I've had a full time living, you know, a pretty good one uh, for eight years now. And my book business doesn't look anything like <laughs> what you The have. book business. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's so funny because I often feel as an uh, independent author um, doing a business that I do, I probably have more in, in common 
common with a tech company than a publisher. And your book really made this clear. So I've never worked in trade publishing. I've been a business consultant. And there are some weird practices. So we've talked about returns. um, And I have print on demand and I sell in bookstores, but I don't allow returns because I'm not going to make any money. So I don't do that. Um, The huge print runs, you've mentioned this. And I think the dirty little secret of pulping, which a lot of people don't know about. And also this focus on debut authors over backlist, which I just don't understand. So um, do you see, I mean, these are some pillars of, of the business, right? So what has to change to make this work in, a, in an increasingly global digital world? Well, you've certainly put your finger on some interesting issues. Um, and and uh, first of all, as far as returns are concerned, if you, if you want uh, distribution through stores, you have to have returns. Um, if you don't care about distribution through stores and you're willing to just take whatever um, risk stores are willing to take or special orders from, from stores where they, they're not, they don't care about returns because they've got the book sold before they order it, then you don't need returns. But if you want stores to stock books speculatively based on expectation that the publisher is going to generate some demand, you're not, it's not going to happen without returns. And in fact, if you're a big publisher like Random House or or any any large publisher, even a even a let's say a university press, you you knock on the door of a store and you've got a lot of books in the store and a lot of books that didn't sell. And you now have a lot of new books you want to put into the store. In your own enlightened self-interest, you would be willing to trade the new books that have a uh, have an unproven possibility of selling against the old books that have proven that they won't sell. So in fact, the publisher in his own interest would, if the returns didn't exist and was a publisher of many books and had many books in the store, would would develop returns. It would sort of, it would, it would happen. In fact, publishers have gone out with the idea that they would have no returns, sometimes negotiate returns because they want to get the next batch of books in. And that's the only way to get them in. Mm. So I think that returns, if, if, you, if you're following a sensible self-publishing model um, where you are not trying to maximize your total unit sales, but you're trying to sell profitably um, what units you can sell, and you're not expecting any sort of explosion of sales where um, it, it, on impulse, where having a lot of books physically present actually makes the book sell, yeah, then, then you don't need returns. But if you're a regular trade publisher that has a lot of titles um, and about which the store is trusting you to do the marketing to make that make demand happen, you're not going to get them in if you don't have returns. And if you don't have and if you don't have distribution in place, you're not going to get the, the kind of store sales that you were hoping for, expecting or have gotten in the past. So I think that the notion that um, I, I understand why returns look silly to uh, uh, somebody who has not been living in the in the in the global book business, but in fact, um, they're they're essential if you're depending on intermediary retailers to sell most of your books. Um, as far as the print runs, I think that's something that's really changing. The the for many many years, the idea was to get the first the, the first printing was the printing. And most books didn't have a subsequent printing. They had one printing. So the and the unit cost of that printing 
was something that the publisher paid a lot of attention to, even though they probably shouldn't have. So that sort of encouraged the whole idea of the big initial press run. And the other thing was that it was axiomatic that stores don't reorder um, titles that have sold. If they buy three copies and they sell the three copies, they don't immediately buy another three copies. They think, good, I sold those three. And they move on to something else. So a publisher... Um, that's that's an incentive for the publisher to load more in at the beginning because whatever you get in is what you're going to sell and you're not going to sell any more than that. Mm-hmm. So that encouraged this whole notion of big first printings and loading the stores with a big advanced sales. Now, that has really gone by the wayside for a lot of reasons, including better computers in the stores that or better computerized inventory control and and computerized suggestions of what you should order and very fast wholesaling and somebody like Ingram, which has everybody, everything in print on demand so that they can give you, get you a copy of a book tomorrow that didn't exist when you ordered it today. Um, and so that the, the supply chain has changed, but, but a lot of the old publishers habits have not necessarily changed with the supply chain. So I think that the notion of putting more books into a store than it needs and the notion that there will be only one order um, and you'll be very hard to get a, a reorder, those are things that publishers need to change their thinking about. Um, and I think many of them are. I don't think that everybody's left in the, in the, in the past. But um, that I think that, that now in terms of the debut author versus the backlist, what that's about is that it takes a certain amount of work to get a, an, auth, an unknown author known. And and a known author is known. So if a if if you have a known or and the backlist is known. Now, what is definitely changing is that publishers are more and more trying to stay alert to developments in the news or developments in the arts or developments among what books are selling to focus them on what books from that they published a year ago or three years ago or 10 years ago or 30 years ago ought to be featured now because something current is going on that makes that book of current interest. So I think that one of the things that publishers are being challenged by is that they used to just be able to focus on the books that are the books that are coming out in two months or the books that have came come out in the last two months. So they focused on, you know, four months of output. And that gave them a finite number of titles that they had to deal with. And now any title could pop from the tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands that they've published over years and years and years. So now they need tools. The big publishers need tools, which they're developing, to to follow the social graph and the current news and figure out which books that might be old need to be made new again. And I think that that psychology and that approach is replacing the notion of just because it's new, we promote it. And if it's old, we don't. But again, um, the big publishers are big beasts, you know, and they have, uh, they, they change and they've changed a lot over the last 10 years, but change is hard and requires staffing differently and structuring differently and um, responding differently to inputs. And it's not something that a large organization can do on a dime. 
Mm. Yeah, actually, what you say makes a lot of sense. And and I think I forget sometimes, um, you know, again, being independent, if, if I want to do something, I just do something. And, and I, if I want to publish something, I just publish it or, yes. you know, and, and there's, I don't need to ask anyone's permission. And most of these um, business models for online publishing are global. Um, so, you know, the, the, even the idea of territory, which I always find really fascinating, <laughs> yes. uh, you know, changes when you have all of your rights. Um, so I uh, yeah really interesting time yes. but but I did um I I did want to ask you about Ingram because from your blog you talk about Ingram a lot and of course they are beloved of indie authors because they allow us to publish with them on Ingram Spark and they sponsor the the show and they're fantastic. So um why why are Ingram so interesting to the I guess the traditional publishing industry as well? Well Ingram I, in in uh, in all candor, I will also say that uh, Ingram is a client of mine and has been for years. Um, they are an amazing company, and they really do believe that their success is dependent on their trading partners' success. And so, and their trading partners are every bookstore, publisher, and library in the world, and a substantial. Uh, group part of the independent author community, which means to, which is to say they touch more individuals and in, individual entities in the book business than anybody else does. What interesting is that they have basically built an infrastructure and they have built a machine that relieves everybody else from having to make the big fixed cost investments. Everybody else can ride on their in, on on their uh, uh, infrastructure and pay only the marginal cost of what they use and what they need. So they've enabled um, people to become publishers without the investment that would have been required 10 years ago or 20 years ago to, um, to do everything, to produce your books, to distribute your books, to sell your books, to market your books. All of these things are now being done by Ingram at scale and being made available to individual publishers or individual authors. So um, the, the key thing, I, I haven't written this in a long time, but I, in the 90s, I used to dine out, 1990s, on the notion that book publishing is the business of content and markets. And that what public, uh, if you're a publisher, what you need to understand is the content that you are publishing and the markets to which it can appeal. Now, a lot of small players have the capability to develop content and some idea of the markets. But if it were if it were the year 2000, you might have all that knowledge, but you have would have to go through the uh, intermediary distribution system to get your books to the public. There would have been no other way. I mean, Amazon was five percent or eight percent of the sales. It wasn't enough to live on. So in those days. If you wanted to be a publisher, you had to invest in an apparatus and you had to maintain that apparatus and you had to feed it enough product to make it worth the effort. And what Ingram has done, and Amazon too, because Amazon was enabled by Ingram, right? Mm -hmm. Amazon would not be here if Ingram had not been here first. But what Amazon and Ingram between them have enabled is for anybody to take a single book and if you've got some, uh, if you create good content, and you know some of the key influencers for the market for that content, which all kinds of people do for different markets. Well, you can be 
you can be a real pro and you can really help have a book reach its potential through Ingram and Amazon without owning any capabilities beyond that. And so that's been a massive change in the industry. And um, and I think uh, Ingram really does have a service orientation because they Amazon Amazon's main interest is its is its cost end use customer. Right. They, mm. What they want to do is to make the person who buys from Amazon happy. And if they have to make some of the people who supply stuff a little unhappy, that's OK with them. Their main fo focus is to make the people who buy from them happy. Ingram is trying to make everybody happy. They're on all sides of the of the equation. And so and so there are certain things they won't do. For example, Ingram will never open bookstores because Ingram would not. Go would not compete with their bookstore trading partners, and even publishing. Ingram has a tiny little publishing company that they bought when as part of the Perseus deal that they acquired, and they're doing a little bit of publishing. But they're not really interested in competing with their publisher trading partners. They will publish if it's, sometimes if it's the easiest thing to do, and it, but they're not going to go out and try to recruit authors in competition with publishers the way Amazon does. It's just not in their DNA. So, so they are a partner that everybody can trust and respect. They are incredibly competent, um, incredibly well run. So um, they are sort of everybody's friend in the book business. And um, I think that's a role that they're very comfortable with. And it makes it good for people like you and me to do business with them. Oh, absolutely. And I, I think you should bring back content plus markets because that is basically how I run my business. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I'm really interested in artificial intelligence and how that might change the publishing industry. So I know I personally wouldn't have a business without the technology that has emerged in the last 10 years. So what I see coming is things like AI translation, and I'm putting some books out in German that way this year, and AI audiobook narration, and even text creation through natural language generation. So given that you've been on the cusp of this type of change for years, I wondered what are your thoughts on what might happen next? How are we going to navigate the next 10 years? Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's very, it's almost impossible for me to look 10 years ahead. Um, uh, it, 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 it's something I've been thinking about for digital book world, actually. But it's it, that's a lot. When you realize how much has changed in the last 10 years, um, it humbles you to think about the next 10 years. When I said earlier about everything that should that's delivered is uh, words to read should also be delivered as words to hear depends heavily on AI. And I think that um, I think that AI, you're definitely right for translation. It makes a lot of sense. As a matter of fact, it's kind of crazy to do translation without AI, without some AI assistance. Right. Mm. I think that I think you we're going to want human brains to cover the last mile of a lot of these things um, where you want the AI to do it, but then you'll want a human being to review what the AI did and catch a few things that the AI didn't catch. Um, I suspect that's the way it'll be for a while. I don't know if that's what you're finding, yeah, but that's absolutely. Right? that's what I would yeah. have thought. Mm. Um, so I, I definitely think that that you're right, that, that it, it's going to be of increasing use. And I also agree that it's going to be, a, there's going to be some need, to, there's going to be some opportunity to create books that way. Um, I'm not exactly sure how, because 
creating books has not really been where I focused my attention, nor is AI where I particularly focused my attention. But I, I definitely, it certainly makes sense to me that, um, for example, um, if you have something like the Mueller report, which is much too long and boring, that AI could be used to create a, um, a, an abridged version that was really just the main highlights and the things that you really need to know without a lot of the redundancy. And so I think that, you know, for, for AI will be used to create, actually, we, we just invented something there. AI could be used to create the, the brief version of any book, the condensed version of, of just about anything. And there, there's probably a market for a condensed version of just about everything, which Reader's Digest uh, established 100 years ago when they started doing Reader's Digest condensed books with no AI at all. So, yes, I would definitely agree that AI is going to have to become part of the publisher skill set and it's going to create competition for things that used to be done highly manually and um, all by human beings. And um, I, I'm, I, don't, I don't really have a guess as to what that means in terms of how many titles will be AI only or how, how it will change the output over the next 10 years, but it definitely become is part of the game. Yeah. And I mean, one of the things that uh, a lot of people said about self-publishing is that it would bring in a tsunami of not very good things. And I've, I've been thinking about this with translation and potentially AI creation. And I was thinking, you know, if, if you think we're overwhelmed with content right now, <laughs> you ain't seen yeah. nothing yet. I mean, it is it is coming, right? So book discoverability has to be one of the most important things in a sea of content, especially with, um, you know, AI translation, for example if every book in every language, like all those Chinese books, for example, appearing in, in English? No, you're, there's no question about it. And, and there's no question about the fact that what you're saying will happen on some level. Um, and and it, will, it may go beyond the crowd's ability to curate. Um, the, crowd, the crowd largely curated the romance fiction and the mysteries mm. um, that came from the indie authors. And the indie authors who who were appealing and persistent. Um, I mean, the, the, the formula for indie success is to do lots and lots of books for the same audiences over and over again so that you can, so that you, your, each book that helps you build an audience is equity for your next uh, uh, publication. And that is something that AI could do uh, to a fairly well. So yes, I think you're, you're, I think you're, your sus and your your vision of this is very much is very right. Oh, interesting. So I know it's very hard to look ten years. I mean, even a couple of years in the future around AI. But also, um, climate change is something that you are very passionate about. And I know uh, this is not a climate change podcast, but I'd love to know, like, how has your interest, um, you know, moved to this? Well, my interest moved to this because the more you learn about CO two in the atmosphere heating the earth the more you realize that this is not sustainable. And, um, and as you learn more and more about it, you realize that the apocalypse is not that far off. I'm, I'm 72 years old, and I think I'll probably get out before the earth is, is really unhospitable to humans. But I wouldn't feel that way if I were 25. And, and so I think it's a, an urgent question. Um, I personally have you know been learning about it. it, it it's 
been a trend. The transition for me has been going from a business like a, the business of books, where I really am an expert. I don't. I'm not. I don't. I wouldn't. I wouldn't try to. Uh, to present false humility. I've been in the business for 50 years or more. My father was in it before me. I've had tons of opportunity to learn about it and know all the people in it. And, and, um, and my expertise is, is fairly earned and, and, and large and widely respected for which I really appreciate. But in, in the world of climate change, I'm a nobody. And, um, and I don't know, and I'm not an expert. I'm learning, trying to learn from the experts and develop a, an, an opinions. The main thing that I've come to is that the right kind, right thinking people need to change their opinion about nuclear. And 20 years ago, I wanted to close every nuclear power plant, but I didn't know what the damage of CO2 was then. And now I know that every time we close a nuclear power plant, we immediately burn more fossil fuel. And that's a terrible trade-off. So I think that that my one of my main interests is convincing people who are right and care that this is something about which they need to change their mind. Um, but in any case, it's 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 definitely it is a passion. It is urgent, um, and it is taking some of my time that used to be spent on publishing to try to do something about it. Mm. Well, I love the fact that you're still learning and pivoting at this stage in your career, because many people would just stick with what they know, but you focus on change. So that's really interesting. Yes. And I, I got to add that because I'm a real um, AI geek, I fully believe in the power of the tech community to invent something that will save us. So I'm 44. I don't think the apocalypse will get me. <laughs> Good. Well, I, there's certainly, there's cert it certainly is, that is the hope. But the, but the fact is, we've already we've already done a lot of damage that we can't avoid. We can't avoid seriously consequential sea level rise, no matter what we do in the next hundred years. And, and uh, so we're going to have to adapt to that. We can do things that will stave off the worst if, and, and technology has a lot to do with that. And um, I quite, you know, I, I sometimes share your optimism and sometimes I don't. <laughs> yeah, I think many people feel that about the book business yes. as well. <laughs> so, yes, um, that's true. Yeah, so it's been so great to talk to you. Where can people find you and your book and everything you do online? Well, um, the Ideological Company is at idealog.com. -E and that's where all my, I mean, I got speeches going back to the 1990s and blogs going back 10 years um, and a lot of content there. Um, the, and you can sign up there to get my blog as an email. Uh, the, the book is the uh, the book is the book business. What everyone needs to know, which I co-authored with a friend of mine named Robert Rieger, who unfortunately passed away since we finished the book. Um, and it is from Oxford University Press. And I think you can find it just about anywhere books can be found. Uh, certainly at Amazon. Certainly from Barnes and Noble. Um, and I, I hope I, I, I tried to make it a pretty breezy read, or Robert and I did. And I think it is pretty accessible to most people. It's a Q and A format. Um, and and I'm at Mike at Ideologue.com, and I'm always happy to hear from anybody that wants to communicate with me. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much for your time, Mike. That was great. Okay. Thanks a lot, Joanna. Pleasure to get to know you. So I hope you enjoyed the interview with Mike today and that it gave you some insight into a side of the publishing business we don't often see as indies. And we shall see in coming months and years as to whether some of our discussions uh, will come to pass. Uh, I fully expect some of those Barnes & Noble changes to start happening 
um, probably before Christmas, but you know, certainly in the next year, as we saw them happening here in the UK when the same thing happened uh, over here. So in the next show, coming in a couple of days, I'm doing an in-between episode all about podcast movement and what authors can learn. And it's very focused on what you can learn. So even if you don't want to start your own podcast, in an era where Google is now indexing audio, getting onto podcasts as a guest is going to become ever more important in terms of content marketing. So that is coming soon. Happy writing and I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. I hope you found it helpful. You might also like the backlist episodes and show notes available at thecreativepen.com forward slash podcast. You can also get your free author blueprint at thecreativepen.com forward slash blueprint. If you'd like to connect, you can tweet me at The Creative Pen or find me on Facebook at The Creative Pen. See you next time.